It's good singing this evening. Glad to hear the praises of the Lord's people and trust that the words have been of encouragement to your own soul. I invite you to turn this evening to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, as we come to the part of our service where we read the Word and consider it together. Luke chapter 11 is where we are as we continue our study in this Gospel. don't want to be trusting in our merit. That's what we've been singing about tonight, whether it be Top Lady or Martin Luther, both of them reminding us of the vanity of our own righteousness. And you see the relevance of that as we come to our reading for this evening. We're going to begin reading at verse 37, Luke chapter 11, verse 37, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter and endeavor by the Lord's help to look at this entire scene in one message, so it's much larger than normal, but I trust we'll, we'll say sufficient so you get the idea while maintaining a sense of unity in what is happening here. So Luke chapter 11, reading from verse 37, let's hear the word of the Lord, and may God bless His precious truth to us. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to meet. When the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying, thou reproachest us also. And he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for you laid men with burdens grievous to be borne. And ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly, ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. Amen. And may the Word of God be written on our hearts. May its warnings and its challenges and encouragements be our instruction here tonight. Let's bow together in prayer again, beloved. Let's look to the Lord. I encourage each and every one of you to pray. Pray for the Lord's help in understanding and receiving His Word. God, we are here tonight by Thy divine mercy. And it is a mercy that we are called to praise Thee. We ask, O God, that such blessings would not be lost in any one of us. To be found here, to be praising the living God, to be instructed 
even in the language of what we've been singing as well as in the public reading of the Word, we are so, so privileged. Oh, help us to love Thy Word. Help us to treasure every single word, for every word of God is pure. And may it always be sweeter than honey and the honeycomb to us. May we receive it. May we submit to it. May we imbibe that which we are called to imbibe and to live out for Thy glory. So, God, this meeting will pass so quickly. And the temptation, yea, the, the danger is it might pass without any real effect to our hearts. God, I pray for myself. Help me to rightly receive Thy Word. And may all those before me also receive it. Oh God, work in the hearts of Thy people. Deepen our repentance and our love for Christ. Our appreciation of the cross. And may those that have yet to be saved be brought to Christ by the power of Thy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever felt attacked in your own home? Have you ever experienced a confrontation within your own home where someone in the confines of your habitation begins to criticize you or speak to you in a way that perhaps not only makes you uncomfortable, but anyone else that's in earshot. The language is spoken in such a manner, the words are such that you can hardly believe what it is that you're hearing, and you're almost in a state of shock that anyone could utter such things so boldly. Such is the scene before us. A man, one of the most eminent men, no doubt, in his community, we are told, a certain Pharisee, verse 37, a man known for being deeply religious, invites Jesus to dine with him. And giving the context and, and the details that appear to us, a number of other eminent individuals are there as well, other Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers, those that were experts in the law and help people to understand not only what the law taught, but how to apply it in various contexts. So you have this eminent scene, all these eminent people that are standing here. They are coming to the house of this particular Pharisee. He opens up his home. He puts on a huge feast. They are no doubt in part increasingly frustrated by the Lord Jesus Christ. The things that he is doing are causing them consternation. The appeal that he has before the common people is upsetting them, and they no doubt want to find out more, and there are other no, motives, no doubt, that are, that are driving this invitation that brings Christ into the home on this occasion. And Jesus immediately dispenses with their customs, the custom being that when you sit down to eat food, not where our translation uses the word meat, but it's food of any kind. And he sits down to eat. We're told in verse 38, when the Pharisees saw, when the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. He dispenses with this custom of washing hands before eating. And of course, you read this, and you, you may read it in such a way where you think, well, is not that a good practice? Do we not do the same? We not sort of tell our children when they come inside, go and wash your hands before you come to the table? I mean, we all, we all do it. We understand something of that. But, but this, this custom is not about hygiene. It's not about the right decorum in terms of before you come to the table, get rid of the dirt or the germs that may be on your hands. This is religious. In fact, the word that you have in verse 38, where it uses the word washed before dinner, is the Greek word baptizo. It has, therefore, ceremonial significance. And this is, again, sometimes some of our brethren that 
want to uh, impose a meaning upon this Greek word that requires immersion clearly here. They weren't immersing themselves before they sat down to dinner. And even the very manner of the washing of the hands wasn't one of immersion. It was a certain practice. We're told one describes it in this way. In performing the ceremonial washing, one started with at least enough of this water to fill one and one-half eggshells. One began by pouring the water over the hands, starting at the fingers and running down towards the wrist. Then each palm was cleansed by rubbing the fist of the other hand into it. Water was poured over the hands again, this time from the wrist towards the fingers. It's a rabbinical custom. Nothing to do with hygiene, but something that had been added to the practice of the Jews over time. And some of the Jews were so diligent in this that they did not do it just before they would eat, but even between meals, if such was the case. And to not do it was to commit a great sin. And so as these men, again, it's difficult for us to sit, uh, sit here tonight and understand just the, the horror or the marvel is the word that we have in our translation, that comes across the Pharisee that is the, the, the owner of the home, the host of the meal. It's, it's just something you're, you're not expecting. It's not something that, that you would permit. It's like seeing some great sin or crime performed in front of you. It's like blatant lies or public fornication or some other great sin that is being performed right in the public view of all that are there, and they are horrified. Christ doesn't follow the tradition. And before we proceed, we might ask, why? Is it not part of Christian practice to live so as to avoid unnecessary offense? Is it not true that we, we do go to other cultures and perhaps behave in a different way at times and adopt their practices so as to not conflict with what they expect? Sometimes amusing to me, and I think it's a generational thing, perhaps. You go back a couple of generations and uh, you sort of, I don't know, there's, the world was, has become increasingly smaller Sometimes you see these older men that you've never really seen in any other context but, say, in a particular Western context, and you see images of them going to somewhere like Nepal, and they begin to adorn the kind of flowers like around their neck, like a necklace around them, and you look at them and say, well, I never, I never would imagine I would ever see that individual wearing such garb, or maybe even the clothing. But they recognize that this is something that's part of the lifestyle over there, part of the culture over there, and there's, there's nothing wrong with adopting it, at least while you're there. You don't want to cause offense. But the Christian is to live so as to avoid unnecessary offense. And that's the distinguishing mark here. This is not an unnecessary offense. What the Pharisees are doing and their expectation here is not a harmless cultural practice, but a practice of false religion. Just, if we can illustrate it this way, if I was to put a wafer before you, like onto the wafer that is used by the Roman Catholic Church in their Mass, if it was to sit before you, and I was to say, eat it, because of some maybe local customer would ever just, just eat it, or it's put there as, I don't know, a form of a meal, whatever other context, not, not a religious context, eat the wafer. There'd be nothing wrong with eating that wafer. But for a Christian, for a Bible-believing Christian to walk into a Roman Catholic church, and after the sacrament, so-called in that context, has received the blessing of the priest, and apparently has been transformed to the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, then to participate in a religious context, it is sin. And at that point, you cause offense. 
Let me say to you, beloved, let me say that Christians should not ever participate in Roman Catholic Mass. I know it can be challenging when family members are still part of that system. And you're confronted with the challenge of one of them passing into eternity or the family member of someone you know passing into eternity and feeling the invitation to be there to participate and to attend the Mass, I say to you, do not go. I well remember I was only a Christian a few months, and the the father of a friend of mine, an old friend of mine from my past life before the Lord saved me, his father died very suddenly, and I went to the funeral, and it was pouring with rain that day, and I remember standing outside that Roman Catholic church wondering, am I meant to go in or not? And at pouring with rain, I thought, well, what harm can it do? I'll just go in and just watch what goes on. Well, the scenes that I saw before me made me resolve I will never darken the door of a Roman Catholic church again. The darkness and the false religion being put before the people, your very presence could be very easily taken as a commendation or approval or acceptance of what is going on. I urge you, Christians, to avoid the Mass no matter the context. I just say this as an aside. It's funny how Christians feel this. I don't want to offend anyone. I remember, I remember when Princess Diana passed away, some of you remember that too. They're all watching the funeral on television. And there was a rabbi invited to that funeral. And when the procession went in to the church, the rabbi did not go in. And no one found fault with it. No one criticized him. They understood he's Jewish. So it should be for us. And this then gives light on what we're faced with here. For Jesus Christ to go in and wash before dinner would be to give His approval to a practice that wasn't just cultural, but was undergirded with religious significance. These men thought themselves to be more justified before God more holy before God, by this practice. And Jesus Christ will not affirm that belief. He will not in any way communicate that that is the case. So they marveled. The Pharisee, at least, that's the host, we are told in verse 38, marvels that he had not first watched before dinner. And what follows then are in total seven woes. Seven woes, some of them specifically addressed to the Pharisees, one in relation to the Pharisee and the scribes, and others in relation to the lawyers. The language is akin to what we find in some of the Old Testament prophets, such as in Isaiah chapter 5 and Habakkuk chapter 2. The prophets were in the business at times of pronouncing woes, formal judgments towards the people. And Jesus does so here. Now, the more well-known portion of this you find in Matthew chapter 23. Very well-known. Woe, 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 continually through that portion. This is a different context. Some of the truths that are pronounced are very similar, but it's a different context. He is sitting here within the home of a Pharisee. And so, I want you to imagine being there. I want you to imagine this, this... individual hosting all these people, all these eminent religious characters, all assembled around the dinner table, and Jesus begins to speak in a way where you can just feel the weight of the atmosphere come into the room, and you could cut it with a knife. It takes them a moment just to process what is going on. The kind of courage that Jesus Christ displays here is very rare. 
that shows us an aspect of our Lord Jesus Christ that will not compromise with falsehood. And for this, he is to be admired. And by the grace of God, we are to follow in his footsteps. So the whole passage then deals with hypocrisy. If really, that is the, if you're the primary issue he's dealing with here, he is sitting before a room full of hypocrites, and he deals with hypocrisy. And I've titled my message tonight, Hypocrisy's Adversary. Hypocrisy's Adversary. The adversary of hypocrisy is none other than Christ. You want to deal with hypocrisy? You want to eradicate hypocrisy? Don't try to formulate it by religious obedience merely. You need to get to Christ. You need to see Christ. You need to trust Christ. You need to understand your need for Christ. The only answer for hypocrisy is not, let me, let me see it this, hypocrisy is not dealt with purely by some superficial honesty. It must be an honesty in light of the gospel, in light of the law of God, and our need for Christ and His substitutionary atonement. So tonight I want us to see this and consider first of all Christ attacks the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He attacks the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Verse 38 through 44. And if you look at these verses, 38 and following, we have first of all words of condemnation. They're words of condemnation. So reading into verse 39 where the Lord then the Pharisee, we're told in verse 38, sees it. We're not told he says anything. But the Lord discerns. And he said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening or plundering and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? Rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. There is, first of all, here in these words of condemnation, the hypocrisy of prioritizing outward appearance. The hypocrisy of prioritizing outward appearance. The danger of reading these words is to imagine that all outward things are bad. To come away with an idea that anything outward is bad. And that would be a wrong conclusion to draw from the text. The text is not saying that the outward is bad. It is the priority of the outward that diminishes the significance of the inward that is the problem. Many of the Pharisees were careful to maintain the appearance of righteousness, but not the inner reality of it. And so the Lord depicts it here of cleaning the outside of the cup or the platter, but the inward part is ravening or plundering and wickedness. That is, there's a a corruption, a covetousness, as in other passages he would deal with their covetousness. He calls them fools in verse 40. Did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? Do you not understand? And and in fact, these words give a, a, a wonderful insight into Christ's understanding of the self-consciousness of man. Man is aware of something beyond the external. He is, he is distinct from other creatures in his ability to be conscious and aware and have knowledge of his own real character, his own real motives and his desires, and understands, therefore, that the one who has made him in that way also knows the innermost part of your being. We are not creatures of mere instinct. We act and we know what was motivating us. We can assess. We can consider. We can review. We can write journals at the end of the day where we reflect upon what we heard, what we saw, how we responded. We are distinct. And that very distinction we are to learn that God Himself is also aware of all of that. And so, not understanding this, or at least in denial of it, Jesus calls them fools. You ought to understand this. Instead, however, they imagine that outward acts, such as giving alms, doing outside works, 
would make all things clean unto them. That is, it would have this justifying effect. It would make them clean without. Of course, there's a sense in which it's true. There is to be this act of doing that which is right, doing that which is important in, in terms of what God calls us to do. But the problem is, the work of Jesus Christ and the gospel is first an inward work, men and women. It begins in the inner. And so again, the outward is important. How we conduct our affairs, how we are perceived, how we are seen, it's not unimportant. We're not to be seen as those where we act like my, God knows my heart and everything we're doing is corrupt and evil and wicked and against the law. And then we, we, we come around and we say, well, you know, God knows my heart in that matter. That, that won't always wash. But there has, to be, there has to be a true assessment of the inner desires of the heart. So the hypocrisy here is that of prioritizing outward appearance, being content purely with the outward. There's also here the hypocrisy of prioritizing minor issues. Verse 42 Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and Passover judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. The law of God stipulated the importance of tithing. Leviticus 27, verse 30. All the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. And, and the, the obvious surface level understanding of that text is fruits and grains. That in your, it goes on to deal with creatures as well later on in that chapter. But in this text, it's, it's like the fruits of the trees, the grain of the land, the tenth of it belongs to the Lord. The Pharisees, being so scrupulous in this matter, they apply it also to mint and all manner of herbs. And Jesus Christ here he has no problem with this. This kind of scrupulous application of the law is not disregarded or condemned. He says that don't leave the other undone. Don't leave that undone. Continue to do that. Be particular. Endeavor to tithe everything that you have. Manifest that kind of diligence in obedience for God. But, but... They prioritized this kind of thing, that is, the tithe of their, of their substance, and they passed over judgment, that is, just assessment of circumstances, and the love of God. Jesus here is drawing from Micah chapter 6, familiar passage to many of you. And you know the particular verse, What does the Lord thy God require of thee? but to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. But the context of it is important as well. Micah 6, verse 6, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Would it be, would it be wrong for you to do that? Of course it wouldn't be wrong for you to do that. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Again, there's a place for this. Of giving, of sacrificing to the Lord. Then he says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Well, of course not. That's, that's what the heathen gods will require. But he hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? It's not that there isn't a place for sacrifice. The point is this. When you're doing all of that, but you're missing, you're missing the core. You're, 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 you're not concerned with the true expression of God's love and justice. You've prioritized the minor, setting aside the major. And I know when saying that, someone may think, well, are there any minor things before God? Are there such a thing as minor things? In, in one sense, Everything God stipulates is important. However, if we place importance on things but we miss the very foundation of our faith, we have misplaced our zeal. And that's the danger. 
So Jesus tells them, look, don't stop doing what you're doing. But these ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Don't miss the core. But this is what they had been doing. There was a hypocrisy of prioritizing minor issues. We're good with God because we do this. We tithe. When there was all sorts of injustices going on. And they didn't care a jot of it. And sometimes they were actually the ones involved in it. I mean, you, you can think of examples, actually. It's just, it's just coming to mind. Reading, reading of, of one example of this that is well known to the vast majority of you here. Remember in John chapter 8? Remember whenever they brought all the religious leaders there, they, they, they brought the woman caught in adultery. And they put her before the Lord to see what ought to be done. Right there you have evidence of this. Their issue was not to deal with the sin that had gone on. Because if their, if their concern was the sin, they would have brought the other party. And you can't deal with crimes of adultery without having both parties involved. So the concern wasn't justice. That's an example of where they themselves were guilty. There's also here the hypocrisy of prioritizing man's opinion. Verse 43, Woe unto you Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. These seats that sat at the front where they would face the congregation, reserved for the most eminent among them, they loved it. They loved it. It put them before the congregation in such a way that they were the eminent. And so they would move through the streets and people would pay the respect and bow their heads and they love it. They love it. They just want that kind of recognition. So these are words of condemnation. Then there are also words of comparison. Verse 44 is a little distinct. Because Jesus says here, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So he adds the scribes here as well. For ye are as graves which appear not. And the men that walk over them are not aware of them. During times of an influx of Jews coming into the area, or other occasions where people would endeavor to warn others that there was a grave in the area, they would, they would whitewash the graves. So people traveling through the area, moving through the area, they'd see the the mark of the grave, and they would know to avoid it. And of course, the importance of that was to, to prevent them becoming, becoming ceremonially unclean, coming into contact with the dead, the danger of not being fit to go to worship. So especially at times of festivals and thousands of people coming in, the pressing of all these many, many tens of thousands moving toward Jerusalem, they would mark these graves so that people could circumvent them, go around them, and know to avoid them. And here Jesus says that the scribes and the Pharisees are as graves which people don't understand are graves, and men walk over them unaware. And his point is this, as men come into contact with the dead and become unclean, so it is for those who come into contact with you. You make them corrupt. Can you put yourself there? Can you, can you sit there at this table, at this dining scene, and see what the Lord is saying? He compares them to graves that make people unclean. Do you ever wonder? Do you ever wonder? 
if your life is really helping other people? Do you ever wonder if you're really an instrument to encourage people towards Christ rather than away from Christ? Do you ever wonder if the the manner of your living, the words that you speak, the spirit that you possess, the attitude that you have, has a negative effect upon the lives of others? Sobering. Jesus sits before these men in the plainest language, and he compares them to graves, as I've said already, stating you have a negative impact on others. You don't help them. You hinder them. So he attacks the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But secondly, he attacks the hypocrisy of the lawyers. Verse 45, Then answered one of the lawyers, and said unto him, Master, Thus saying, thou reproachest us also. (laughs) As I said already, the lawyers are those who are experts in the law. They are consulted on matters of the law. They help in the application of the law. Certain nuanced areas of, of dealing with crimes or sins and things. How should we deal with this particular thing that the Word of God doesn't explicitly deal with? And they have such an understanding of the law, or they're meant to have such an understanding of the law, that they can, by implication, give clear guidance in what the mind of God ought to be in any given occasion. And as Jesus speaks, and the atmosphere is tense, one of the lawyers points out the obvious, thus saying, Thou reproachest us also. Well, so it is sometimes when you preach. The preacher aims for a particular type of person with a particular type of sin, and he not only hits them, he hits a few others as well. And it has been said at times, well, if the shoe fits. Well, so it is here. If the shoe fits. And let me just say, Remember, remember that the Lord here is dealing with the visible church. He's dealing with the visible church. And he is dealing with the visible church in such a way where he addresses the matter of hypocrisy in clear terms. So if you're a preacher here, not just preachers, but I say to preachers, do not avoid dealing with the sin of hypocrisy. And not just if you're on the streets dealing with the lost and people who never attend a house of God. Hypocrisy. I mean, this is, I, 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 I'm standing here thinking this is obvious enough that it, it doesn't even need to be stated. But in case there's someone deluded, hypocrisy is a real thing within the visible church. We're always in danger of it. So how does the Lord then deal with these lawyers? Where first of all, we can say that he deals with the hypocrisy of prioritizing rules that supplant the Scriptures. Verse 46, he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers! If you laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. These men would give advice on what ought to be done. Here's how to deal with the scenario. Here's what the Word of God would state in this particular case, whatever it might be. But they themselves would not apply the same. They wouldn't take it to heart. They wouldn't wouldn't take that same depth of application and apply it to their own lives. That's what the Lord says. And so as as you're consulted for your advice... You put burdens, grievous to be borne, upon others. In fact, the entire rabbinical 
law, this system that had developed over years, adding constant commandments that were exceeding the ex- demands of the Word of God, were constantly being added to by men like this, but, but they themselves would not do what they're called to do. Now, again, some of them may be in denial of this, but, but the fact of the matter is, this, this is true. This is true of, of anyone who preaches the law without the gospel. You can't teach the law without the gospel without being guilty of this very thing. You become a hypocrite because in any command, any command, even legitimate commands, the whole point of the law, the whole point of even that which God has given is to expose men and make them very conscious of their inability to obey God. So even for a lawyer who was actually doing his job correctly, if he gives the law without Christ, he lays on men burdens that cannot be borne. I stand up here and say, here's your duty. Keep the Ten Commandments. So head off. Just keep the Ten Commandments. That's what God wants of you, just keep the Ten Commandments. Now, do we believe the Ten Commandments have an application to the believer's life? Yes. But the void of Christ, that, that is a burden that cannot be borne. Because you lay it before people in such a way that you say, here is how you obtain life. And they strive after life by obedience to commandments they cannot keep. And if they're under the illusion that they can keep them, it is only in the external, as is the case with the men being dealt with by Christ. And there can't be, it is impossible for the inner man, the true core of the being, consistently to uphold the law of God. It can't be done. So even in the best of cases, a man who gives the law burdens men if he does not give them the gospel where they see the covenant of works, the law of God fulfilled in Christ, and that alleviates them so they're not endeavoring to obey it in order to please God in a justifying way. They're not, put it this way, they're not obeying the law of God because they must to be saved We endeavor to obey the law of God because we get to, because we're saved. We get to. But with these men, they added further commandments. They added other things, more minutia. Little things were placed upon the lives of people that were impossible to bear. Now, when you read this, of course, I can see some, maybe some of you very sharp children, You look at verse 46 and you say, you know, whenever someone gives a commandment that doesn't have book, chapter, and verse, then I don't have to obey it. And so when mom and dad says, bedtime is 8 p.m., and you say, well, where does the Bible say that? That is not, not a right application of this. It is fair and right to give commandments that aren't actually found in the Word of God, providing they don't supplant the Scriptures and what God requires. So when your parents, kids, when your parents say to you, bedtime is this time, and you don't think it's fair, too bad. Too bad. (laughs) And when you see your older siblings getting to stay up a little older than, or a little later than you, and you think, it's not fair, too bad. <laughs> and so it is with the state. They, 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 they have their laws, their rules. Sometimes we roll our eyes. Realize all the stipulations you decide you want to put an extension onto your house and then you realize there are all these 
building codes and you look at them and you say, what? Who, who came up with this? Or maybe you go to Bob Jones University and you hear about some of the rules over there and you ask yourself, who came up with this? Usually it's in response to something foolish that has been done in the past. It's okay. Nothing wrong with it. Authority figures have a right to put certain things in place for the good of individuals and society and the family. They have a right to do that. That's not what is being dealt with here. Christ's problem here is burdening people with things which actually, and if you were to take time to go to other scriptures, you'll see this. If you understand what he says in other places to the lawyers, the issue is they were, they were making of none effect the scriptures because of their traditions, because of the things they were adding or had added in the past. And so they supplant the word. Which is what tradition does, you know. And whether it be tradition, capital T, in the Roman Catholic Church, or some other traditions that get developed over time, always a danger, always a danger. Be aware of the danger that tradition has this way over time of becoming more significant to us than the Word. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Because you say it's the Word of God that is uppermost, and by your practice you deny it. Also, the hypocrisy of prioritizing prophets as long as they're dead. So, we're told in verse 47, Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. They had a way of appreciating the prophets, valuing their words, speaking as if they were in approval of them, but only those prophets that had lived prior to their generation. And so it was throughout the history of Israel. They had this habit of appreciating Abraham, appreciating Moses, appreciating anyone who was in the past to some degree, but never listening to the man that God sends in the present. This is a perpetual crime. We do the same. We do the same. In the business of doing this all the time, we have a real problem at times with contemporary voices to our lives, while at the same time we lift up the reformers, the magisterial reformers, the Puritans, men who have gone before them, men that have come after them. And the danger may be that we would be found, if we are critical of God's men in the present, chances are you probably would be critical of God's men in the past. Now, when he speaks of Abel onto the blood of Zacharias, what he is doing here is the whole expanse of martyrdoms that had taken place in the Old Testament. And Zacharias is placed as at the end because it's Second Chronicles. In the Old Testament, in the way that the, the Jews had the canon put together, Second Chronicles came at the end. So that's where you get this particular narrative told to you. And so he's basically saying throughout the entire expanse of the recorded Word of God from Genesis through to Second Chronicles with the mistreatment of the prophets of God, it's going to be required of this generation. And the question might be, well, well why should it be required of this generation? Is it not required of the generations prior? Is it not required to those who were involved in the mistreatment of God's men in the past? Well, of course it was required of them. 
Cain had to suffer. His punishment was greater than he could bear. And those who rejected the prophets down through the ages, they, they all had to suffer tremendously in Second Chronicles 36. Verse 15, the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up the times and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. They suffered. They did suffer. But the problem is being compounded one generation after another. And it's all going to come to a head in this generation. And it did. It did. When Jerusalem was laid waste in AD 70, God was indicating through His divine providence, here is the culmination of judgment upon you for your treatment of my messengers. And God's final word Final prophet, Jesus Christ, and your treatment of him seals your doom. Oh, they would speak like they appreciated them. They would quote them as if they valued them. Again, we, I, I say to you, beloved, we do the same. Be very careful. Be very careful. Ah, perhaps even tonight. Perhaps there are times even when I preach in such a way and there's a little critical voice that begins to creep up. You know, it just begins to creep up within your heart. Didn't really like that message. And yet, you would never say that once about Thomas Watson, John Calvin, maybe even Martin Luther. And if you say that, clearly you're not familiar with Martin Luther. (laughs) And a whole host of others. the, The criticism... It barely appears. But but to God's voice in the present, when it's coming to you directly in time, addressing where you are, it's very easy to become critical. Speak well of the preachers of the past. And speak in a mocking, despising, or misusing way of those men in the present. It's a type of hypocrisy manifested by the lawyers. Also, the hypocrisy of prioritizing truth without the gospel. Verse 52. Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, ye hindered. Here's the thing. They had the truth. They had the Word of God. They knew it better, perhaps, than anyone. And they could quote the Scriptures. And I've used this illustration before. You remember the wise men coming from the East, looking for where the child should be born. And they arrive into the area, and they come to Herod, and they, they look for help. They don't know exactly where he, We know he's somewhere here, but we don't know exactly where he's meant to be. And they they seek out the teachers of the time, the religious leaders of the day, and they're able to say, well, he's meant to be born in Bethlehem. The religious leaders knew the Word of God as to where Messiah should be born, even though those seeking for him were not aware of it. But who had the heart of the issue? Who showed true life, spiritual life? Well, so it was with these men. Go back a minute to, to John 3. John chapter 3. These men, they had the truth, and Christ expected them to know. John 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He's a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee. So he's of the company that Jesus is keeping for our text tonight. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Are you a teacher? Are you a master? The others follow you, and, and you, don't, you don't get it? That's exactly what the Lord is addressing here. You have taken away the key of knowledge. He entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. What Nicodemus ought to have known is the need for a spiritual regeneration. What Nicodemus ought to be aware of is that the Old Testament Scriptures of which he was meant to be a master taught plainly that it must go beyond the external form. And Jesus challenges, are you a master? You're a teacher and you don't know? The Scriptures are clear. Deuteronomy 10, 16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. And recognizing the sovereignty of God and salvation, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart, and the heart of thy seed, to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. Moses, Moses understood it. Moses proclaimed it. Moses taught it. The prophets taught it as well. The transformation of the heart, a work of God in the innermost being, is what is necessary. And these men, instead of understanding that, they took away the key of knowledge. They took away the way of salvation. They supplanted the way of salvation. They substituted it with all the religious paraphernalia. And anyone who seemed to make a way towards Christ, they stood in their way and they hindered them. Have you ever seen that? Oh, it's an awful thing. It's an awful thing. My own mother-in-law went through that very thing as a young woman going to her Presbyterian minister and asking how to be saved. And the apostate fool had no answer for her. Just told her to carry on, do the best that she could, she'd be fine. He didn't know the way himself. And he hindered those trying to get in. Have you had that inner work? Have you? Is your religion one that begins by a miracle of God, do you recognize that it must begin there? I need a miracle in my life. I need a new heart. The people, you know, they often say the church, the church is full of hypocrites. <laughs> you know the best answer to that? Someone says to you, I don't go to church, the church is full of hypocrites. Best answer to that is just say to them, yes, and there's always room for one more. <laughs> of course, the real definition of a hypocrite is a man who pretends to be something he's not. That's not the true Christian. The true Christian, the true Christian, fall I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We know we're foul. We know we can't meet the demands of God's law. We freely confess it. We say to the world, guilty as charged. Find fault in me if only you knew the half of it. 
I'm filled with fault. I'm inconsistent from morning to evening. My heart is filled with all sorts of wavering and corruption and sin. I'm, that's why I need Jesus Christ. And this is what makes Jesus Christ the adversary of hypocrisy. He's the only answer for it. Don't give a man another ten steps to change his life. Give him Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ exposes by his perfect life the complete inability of any of us to live that way. By his sacrifice on the cross, he, see, he displays in the clearest terms the absolute necessity for sin to be paid for in a way that we dare not ourselves. So we see him bearing hell for us. We fall before the cross and we see him, yes, he is the adversary of hypocrisy. He eradicates it. I no longer pretend to be something I'm not. I can admit myself to be the wretched sinner I am and my need for the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away my sins and the power of the Spirit to make me a new man. The final two verses is just the response of the hypocrites. I'll not spend any time. Just read them. As he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him. Instead of thinking about what he said, instead of musing upon what he had said, oh, it had, it had hit them very, it had, <laughs> it had cut through all the pleasantries of dining together. His words had gotten right to their hearts in a way they had never experienced before. And instead of just silently pondering the truth and why it was that his words seemed to be so cutting, they endeavored to try and catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. He had accused them. Now they're looking for a way to accuse him. And oh, how vain is going to be that attempt. Isn't it so vain? We're going to get to them there standing at the mock trial for the high priest. And they bring all their false witnesses and none of the two agree together. They can't even, they can't even get witnesses Fake witnesses to agree and to get a consensus. Because here, here is truth incarnate. Here is the only one who could ascend into the hill of God with clean hands and a pure heart. And when he turns his eye on you and points out your sin, it is a mercy. And instead of rejecting it, instead of puffing yourself up in defense of the things that he has exposed in your life, you run. You run as fast as you can to the cross. And you seek mercy. That's found in Christ alone. May the Lord bless his word. Let's bow together in prayer. say to members of this church and those of you who are part of this congregation, I want us to be very sober about the fact that hypocrisy is always a danger, that we may slip into a condition of thinking we've gone beyond our deep need of Jesus Christ and the pretense with which we can so easily live our lives. Know your uncleanness. Know your sin. Bless God for the sensitivity and awareness that you have of it. 
get to the foot of the cross for cleansing, to be purged and made whiter than snow. Those of you here hiding under a refuge of lies, you're not saved, you've never been changed, you've never experienced a new heart, it's time to seek the Lord. You can seek Him where you are. And if for some reason you need some help or guidance, you can speak to me or someone else who you know could open the Word of God and help you. Lord, we pray, bless thy word. What sobering, what a sobering scene this is. But how thankful we are for the true, for the truth, the honesty of Jesus Christ. And these words, though not directed to us specifically in the context, yet we take them to heart, for we are dead scared of ever falling under the condemnation of religious hypocrites. May we always live with a deep-seated awareness of our need for the righteousness of the Lamb. And may we always boast only in the cross. So bless this congregation with a daily awareness of its need for the cleansing blood of Christ. And help us then, in the joy of our cleansing, to point other sinners to the cross. Be with us. Bless our time of fellowship downstairs. Grant that the food may be eaten to thy honor and to thy glory. And help each one of us to help one another. Move in our midst. Help us to keep our hearts with all diligence. And empower us to live this week for thy glory as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.